service. This episode contains content that may be disturbing to some listeners. Please check the show notes for more information. Badlands is a production of Double Elvis. The stories about Sal Minio are insane. He was the leader of a street gang in the Bronx at the age of 10. When he traded in gang life for theater life, he was hunted and attacked by older kids throughout the subways of New York City for not being manly enough. He attempted to communicate with his dead co-star, James Dean, by using a Ouija board in a pint glass. He was targeted by swastika-wearing white supremacists when his role as a Jewish man received an Oscar nomination. And at the age of 37, he was murdered. The 15-month homicide investigation would expose how deep intolerance ran in the United States circa 1976, even in liberal Hollywood. And Sal Minio made great films, unlike that clip I played for you at the top of the show. That wasn't a clip from a great film. That was a fair use sample from the Library of Congress of the Peerless Orchestra performing in a monastery garden from 1921. I played you that clip because I can't afford the rights to a clip from Martin Scorsese's Taxi Driver. And why would I play you that specific slice of organized cheese, could I afford it? Because that was the number one movie in America on February 12, 1976. And that was the day that Sal Minio was stabbed to death outside his West Hollywood apartment. On this episode, street gangs, Ouija boards, murder, organized cheese, and Salminio. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands Season 3, Hollywoodland. screaming, oh no, oh my God, no. Monica Merrim was only nine years old, but she knew what she heard. The man's screams were coming from the carport right outside her bedroom window at the Park Wellington Towers. Living in an apartment complex in West Hollywood, within spitting distance of the strip, meant you got used to noises all the time, even at nine years old. You got used to ignoring them, blocking them out. But sometimes, you heard something that wasn't run-of-the-mill big city commotion. Sometimes you heard something you couldn't ignore. And at this moment, Monica Maram was hearing one of those things. Help me, please, please help me. The voice was urgent and helpless. Monica looked out her window. She was supposed to be sleeping. It was after 9 p.m. The sun had long since set. Still in the darkness, she thought she saw a man with long hair running away. And then she heard a car engine start. Tires squealed in the distance. Roy Evans, another resident of the apartment complex at 8567 Holloway Drive, also heard the screams and ran to help. He found a man on the ground in the carport. 
The man was on his side, in the fetal position. He was wearing blue jeans and a blue shirt with red and white flowers. Roy Evans rolled him onto his back. The red and white flower pattern wasn't visible on the front of the shirt. There was too much blood. It was everywhere. It trickled from the man's body and ran through the cracks in the asphalt. The man wasn't breathing. Roy tried in vain to administer CPR. Detectives and deputies from the LA County Sheriff's Department arrived minutes later. and They discovered a single stab wound to the man's upper chest. Paramedics attempted to resuscitate. He was declared dead at 9.55 p.m. Pacific Time, February 12, 1976, a Thursday. The detectives found his wallet still on him. Cards inside the wallet ID'd the man as Salvatore Minio Jr., better known as the actor Sal Minio, even though it had been six years since his last appearance in a Hollywood film. He was 37 years old. Sal's body had been found near his car. The car was still warm, and so was his body. $21 in the left pocket of his jacket. His sunglasses were on the ground next to his body, in the keys to his car, in a red address book, a brown paper bag with a cupcake. When the paramedics put his body on a stretcher, they discovered loose change on the pavement beneath him. The first thing the detectives did was cross robbery off the list. No way Sal was simply held up. If it was a robbery, then why did he still have his wallet, the $21, and the loose change? But the dismissal of a robbery angle wasn't simply because Sal's wallet and money were found on him. The detectives knew all about Sal Minio. Sal didn't hide the fact that he enjoyed the company of both women and men. These days, it was mostly men. They'd heard the stories, they knew the places he hung out, and they knew what turned him on. When the detectives searched Sal's apartment, they doubled down on their theory that Sal's death wasn't the result of a botched robbery, but rather a tawdry piece of rough trade. Just look at the place, the walls for one, pictures of naked men everywhere. And did you see the reading material in the bedroom? From the cop's perspective, those nudie mags were queerer than a $3 bill. Add into the mix that red address book, the one they'd found on his body. It was full of men's names and numbers and locations of known gay clubs in LA, hookup spots, skin flick theaters. The cops stood inside Sal Minio's West Hollywood apartment with their standard issue crew cuts and their short sleeve Oxfords with soft packs of Paul Malls crushed in the breast pocket. And they made the immediate assumption that the murder was due to Sal's quote unquote, alternative lifestyle. Because even though it was 1976, and even though this was Los Angeles, and not only Los Angeles, but West Hollywood, where struggling actors found the rent cheap and the growing gay community established a foundation for what would later be proudly known as Gay Camelot. Even though LA was one of the most progressive cities in the United States, it still was far from idyllic if you were gay. To be out in 1976 meant that you were making yourself a target. You were stereotyped, harassed, harangued. You were pigeonholed and belittled. You couldn't even die without the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department thinking that you had been involved in a same-sex crime of passion. The cops had no prints from the crime scene. The only lead they had to go on were a few witnesses who described the person who fled the scene as a white man of average build with long hair. The cops pounded the pavement around town. They worked the dirty money for dirty sex angle. 
Did Sal have other known homosexuals over to his place often? Was he in the habit of bringing strangers home? And what about prostitutes? Did he have any disgruntled ex-lovers? But what about drugs? To cops on the beat, one vice begets another. But first, just the facts. Sal was an actor. The cops knew that. He wasn't just good, he was great. And the cops knew that too. And they also knew that he'd appeared alongside James Dean in both Rebel Without a Cause and Giant. He starred opposite Paul Newman in Exodus, which earned him his second Oscar nomination after Rebel. Groucho Marx thought Sal was so deserving of the Oscar for Exodus that he took out an ad in Variety to lobby for him. Sal played drummer Gene Krupa in a biopic to great acclaim. Such great acclaim that even Mickey Cohen, the notorious Los Angeles gangster, wanted Sal to play him should a movie ever be made about his life. But that was 15, 20 years ago. Sal's career had seen better days. As Sal matured and became comfortable with his bisexuality, he chose to live his life out loud, unlike other Hollywood stars like Rock Hudson and Tony Perkins, who kept their private lives on the down low. And that meant that as Sal grew older and more confident in his own sexuality, the film roles dried up. In the late 60s, it was Dustin Hoffman, a straight man, who played Razzo Rizzo in Midnight Cowboy, not Sal Mineo. Sal couldn't even get an audition. And then in the early 70s, Al Pacino landed the role of Michael Corleone in The Godfather over Sal, even though Sal's background as the actual son of a Sicilian immigrant made him an obvious choice. According to Sal, the reason he didn't get a fair shot was because one of the other actors in The Godfather allegedly said he refused to act opposite an openly gay man. And that isn't to say that there weren't other successful gay actors in Hollywood in the 1960s and 1970s, because there most certainly were. But unlike Sal, they kept their lifestyles outside of the limelight and thus their careers flourished. The detectives also learned that as Sal's career cooled off, he continued to spend money as if he was still hot. Years back, he'd gone broke, quarter of a million in back taxes had to sell everything, including the house in New York he'd bought for his folks. As he struggled to find work, he rediscovered that the theater where he'd gotten his start welcomed him with open arms when Hollywood's arms folded. At the time of his death, he was playing the role of a bisexual burglar in P.S. Your Cat is Dead, only a few minutes drive from his apartment at the Westwood Playhouse. And that was all well and good, but the cops wanted the stuff they didn't know about the stuff that their hunches were made of. They called the numbers of the men in Sal's little red book. They loitered at the gay-friendly spots that the address book lay bare. And they wanted to know how often Sal's homosexual encounters traveled from the bar back to his pad at the Wellington Towers. And they wanted to know more about the drugs. Some told the cops that Sal dabbled in reefer and coke. Others said LSD was his bag. Others still said that Sal did more than dabble, that he sold drugs on the side to make the ends meet. The autopsy made an argument that Sal didn't do drugs at all. Sal had died of a massive hemorrhage, and the single stab wound went straight through his heart. He had been shivved with extreme force and precision, but there were no drugs in his system. To the detectives, it wasn't adding up. They continued to dig for gossip, chase down rumors, 
Some of the rumors were truly outrageous, like the one that Sal once had a liaison with Boston mob boss Whitey Bulger at a Southie dinner club. Look it up. The way that the cops saw it, vice begets vice, and surely this whole thing led to a scandalous expose, no matter how tricky the math had to be to get there. And the whole time, the simplest explanation was staring them right in the face. The NYPD came in swinging, nightsticks cut through the air. They pushed through the packed crowd inside the Stonewall Inn. Hands grabbed shirt collars to the sound of the Fifth Dimension's Aquarius coming from the house stereo. The cops didn't give a shit if the moon was in the seventh house. They were in the house. Right now, that was. And though they were outnumbered something like 200 to 10, the NYPD were officially shutting down the Stonewall Inn. It was just after midnight. June 28th, 1969. Nightsticks swung and caught flesh. The cops didn't care who they snared. Bartenders, taxi drivers, drag queens, legal assistants, homeless youth, could be fucking congressmen. This was a homosexual establishment. And in the cops' eyes, they were all perverted, all immoral, all indecent. The cops were sworn to protect public morals and decency. So they dialed their prejudice up to 11 and began to sweep long hairs and short hairs alike towards the paddy wagons and patrol cars outside. Whoever didn't get pinched were welcome to run away, screaming. But the crowd of hundreds inside the Greenwich Village gay bar didn't do what crowds usually did in this situation. They weren't scared. They didn't scatter like cockroaches down Christopher Street. They fought back. Patrons and employees at the Stonewall Inn began to yell at the police officers. This was fucking unfair. It was harassment. The pigs weren't there because the music was too loud or because there were some underage kids smashing pints of Schlitz. They were there because some guys were dancing with other guys. And that offended the cops' missionary sex having meat and potatoes eating, gun smoke watching sensibilities. Fucking pigs all. The crowd mobilized. Maybe it was something in the air that night. Maybe it was the funeral of gay icon Judy Garland earlier that day. Maybe it was just goddamn time that society, the New York Police Department included, accept people for who they were, no matter who the fuck they danced with. The crowd cheered on those who were getting roughed up by the cops, which in turn inspired those in the NYPD's clutches to put up a struggle and dramatically escape. Punches flew, legs kicked, blood spilled. The conflict spilled out onto the sidewalk and soon random passers-by and neighbors joined the fray. Bottles and bricks were thrown at the NYPD officers who were now losing serious ground. The crowd continued to yell, continued to fight back. They did not back down. And before long, they had the cops hiding inside the bar. They had the cops hiding inside the bar, radioing for backup. The next day, the New York Daily News headline read, Homo nest raided, queen bees are stinging mad. And that should tell you all you need to know about life as a gay man or woman in New York City circa 1969. We like to think of the end of the 1960s as a particularly enlightened time of free love and free will, but this was the reality. Simply being gay in public, in New York City of all places, put your life in real danger. If a man was caught dancing with another man in one of New York's gay bars that just happened to be mafia-owned, as many of them were, 
Even if a man touched another man, some stooge on a stool would shine a flashlight in their direction. One flash was a warning. A second flash was a threat. And three times, well, that's when the stooge got on the horn to the NYPD who had a hush-hush deal with the mafia to bust up overtly gay behavior every time it got out of control. A decade earlier, the U.S. State Department had purged gay and lesbian employees from their ranks over concerns that they compromised national security. Anti-sodomy laws criminalized homosexual behavior for more than a century in most states. And in 1968, the American Psychiatric Association categorized homosexuality as a mental disorder. Admitting that you had romantic feelings for someone of the same sex could earn you a few rounds of shock therapy. Just ask Lou Reed. The riot at the Stonewall Inn in June 1969, however, which came to be known as the Stonewall Rebellion, was a major turning point in America's gay rights movement. Some even say it launched the gay rights movement, even though it would take decades for real change to happen at the state and federal levels. The Stonewall Rebellion did have some positive immediate impacts. And it was at this time that Sal Minio was making his directorial debut at New York Stage 73. The play was called Fortune in Men's Eyes, set in a prison. It was one of a handful of trailblazing productions at the time that offered frank depictions of homosexuality. But Fortune in Men's Eyes was more controversial than most due to a three-minute rape scene. It polarized early audiences. It was in the aftermath of the Stonewall Rebellion that the New York Times theater critic Clive Barnes offered up a dismissive review of Fortune in Men's Eyes, in which he wrote, I suggest that if this is the play you would like, you need a psychiatrist a lot more than you need a theater ticket. He called Sal's direction mere sexual titillation and, after dismissing Sal, already a two-time Academy Award nominee as a minor Hollywood player, he surmised that, I am perfectly certain what reputation Mr. Minio deserves. New York City's gay community, still empowered and inspired by the forward momentum of the rebellion, saw the review as another attack. This time, it just happened to be newsprint instead of nightsticks. So they fought back with their dollars at the box office and made sure that the play got the attention it deserved. Attention was something that Sal Minio was used to but often not for the reasons he wanted. Sal grew up in the Bronx, the son of Sicilian immigrants. His father was a casket maker, a profession which got the family through the Great Depression. But it didn't earn Sal any friends. He found acceptance in a street gang, which Sal was running with at 10 years old. He used his father's caskets to stash the gang's stolen goods, like sports gear they'd lifted from the school's locker room. And that's when the unwanted attention began. When Sal's gang was busted for theft, a judge threatened to send him to a correctional institution unless he was able to find a more productive outlet for his boredom. So he took dance lessons and found the transition from pilfering to plies to be a natural one. He just wasn't cut out to be a switchblade kid. By 1951, he was 12 years old and appearing on stage in a production of the Tennessee Williams play the rumor's tattoo. He had one line every night. And even though it was just one line, the New York theater scene paid attention to Sal, but not as much attention as he received riding the subway back and forth between the Bronx and Manhattan every day. 
A delicate theater kid with a makeup bag in his hand, Sal was an easy target. Some days, it felt like the subway cars were just full of skeezy older men. They propositioned Sal each time he strode by. At least they didn't give chase. The street thugs, they were a different story. The gangs chased him relentlessly. Sal would switch trains, try to throw them off the scent, go out of his way to escape the very real threat of violence. Sometimes he'd get lucky and simply arrive at the Martin Beck Theater sweaty, out of breath, and a little late. On the days that he wasn't so lucky, he'd show up with his nose bloodied, his shirt torn, his nerves shot. The superficial stuff was easy to take care of, nothing that his bag of stage makeup couldn't fix. But the terror stuck with him. What had he done to provoke the attacks? So he liked to dance, he liked theater, he liked to look nice. Were people threatened by him? Sal Minio, the skinny kid from the Bronx? How could it be? He didn't have a mean bone in his body. But that didn't mean that some wouldn't try to break them all. Sal Minio had just closed the door of his car when he saw them in the rearview mirror. A half dozen guys, more blockhead than beefcake. They all jumped from a pickup truck that had just pulled into the garage, directly behind where Sal was parked. It looked like college gridiron types, with one distinct difference. They all had swastika armbands on their biceps. It was 1961, Hollywood, a hotel apartment complex off Sunset Boulevard. Sal was in town to promote Exodus, the Otto Preminger epic based on Leon Uris's novel about the founding of the State of Israel. For his role as Dove Landau, Sal was up for an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor. It wasn't unusual for Sal to be cast in roles that weren't strictly Italian-American. This was a time in Hollywood when representation was close to nil, although it definitely didn't improve during Sal's lifetime. Remember that bit about Dustin Hoffman playing the gay dude while the gay actor can't even get the audition? Ironic. And Sal's olive complexion landed him roles as a Mexican or Native American. But his portrayal of a Jewish character, though lauded in print by Groucho Marx, had summoned the sort of unwanted attention he hoped he'd left behind in New York City a decade earlier. Sal kept his eyes locked on the rearview mirror. The men were coming in hot, all six of them. Sal couldn't see if they were brandishing any weapons. He turned the ignition. The sound of the car rumbling to life echoed through the underground garage. Fists came down on the back of the car. Sal put it in reverse and began to back up. The pounding on the back of the car continued. It got louder, the sound of knuckles on aluminum. Sal knocked one of the guys down as he backed the car up farther. A few others moved out of the way to avoid getting run over. Now, some were on the sides of the car, grabbing at the door handles, banging on the windows. Sal put it in first gear, hit the gas pedal, and sped away before the racist jocks could do real damage. He made a clean escape. He'd staved off violence for now. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. On February 12th, 1977, Sal Minio had been dead for a year. The investigation into Sal's murder had followed leads, tips, and hunches through alleyways into the back rooms of bars and down dead-end rabbit holes. The cops set up a hotline for people to call with information. But Sal's case was as cold as the winter air back in the Bronx. Witness testimony remained conflicted. Some said they saw a youth with long blonde hair flee the scene of the crime. Others said it was a white man in his 20s with 
wavy or curly brown or black hair. A yellow car was noted speeding away that night, and maybe a Toyota. The investigation, it dragged on and traveled beyond California into Nevada, Arizona, Florida, and New York. Through it all, detectives refused to believe that Sal could have simply been killed during a botched robbery. To that end, they shook down every known gay man in the greater Los Angeles area, and it got them nowhere. And they shifted the case to the back burner. One year after Sal Mineo had been found dead in the carport behind his apartment building in West Hollywood, the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department was no closer to finding a killer than they had been on day one. And it would be a while longer still before they finally talked with someone who would break the whole thing open. Sal Mineo wanted to talk to Jimmy Dean. Jimmy was his idol had been ever since 1955 when Sal was 16 years old and played John Plato Crawford in Rebel Without a Cause. Plato was an outcast who found his people in Jim and Judy, played by James Dean and Natalie Wood, respectively. Tragically, Plato died at the end of the film. Symbolically, he died in Jim's arms. Rebel Without a Cause was famous for being one of the first Hollywood studio movies to pay serious attention to the lives of teenagers. Sal would later boast that, as Plato, he portrayed the first gay teenager ever in movies. Plato and Jim's love for each other is palpable in the film, even if it's Judy and Jim who share the on-screen kiss. It's rumored that the script initially called for a kiss between Plato and Jim, but it being the time of the Hayes Code and all, the scene was cut. The Motion Picture Production Code Office did send a memo to Warner Brothers instructing Jack Warner himself in no uncertain terms that there should be no, quote, inference of a questionable or homosexual relationship between Plato and Jim. Sal Mineo realized now, years later, that he loved Jimmy Dean like Plato loved Jim, and he thought that Jimmy had loved him back. Right now, he just wanted to talk to him. But talking with Jimmy was going to be impossible because James Dean was dead. Had been ever since his Porsche 550 Spider ran into the side of a Ford Tudor at the junction of Route 466 and Highway 41 back in September of 1955. Sal took Jimmy's death hard. He grieved hard. In Jimmy's absence, Sal wanted to feel closer to him than he ever had before. Sal worked on becoming James Dean. Jimmy played the drums, so Sal bought a drum set. Jimmy was into bullfighting, so Sal took matador lessons. Before the cursed Porsche 550 Spider, Jimmy owned an MG. Sal ditched his 1949 Mercury and bought an MG just like Jimmy's. He took the MG on wide open roads and let it rip. He shifted to a higher gear, higher. He drove fast, he didn't chicken, just like Jimmy had driven Sal and Natalie fast while they made Rebel. The wind fucked up his neatly combed black hair and he didn't care. The faster Sal drove, the more he thought of Jimmy. Sal kept driving fast until the city of New York made him stop. He was fined for speeding in three separate incidents in an 18-month period, twice within the span of 10 minutes on the Henry Hudson Parkway, and then another time in the Bronx. When he appeared in traffic court, the judge revoked his license. Fuck. If only Jimmy were here, he would know what to do. He'd have the right thing to say. He could make Sal feel comfortable and unafraid in a way that few people could. But Jimmy was gone, so Sal got creative. The Ouija board was spread out in front of him on a table. 
shaker pint glass upside down on top. Lights dimmed, candles lit. Sal didn't know if he believed in any of this hocus pocus stuff, but what the hell, you gotta do something. He placed his hands delicately on top of the glass and asked for Jimmy. Jimmy, are you there? It's me, Sal. The glass rattled lightly on the table. Jimmy, I miss you. We all miss you. Are you there, Jimmy? Are you receiving me? The glass moved slowly to the S on the Ouija board, and then up and to the left to the letter A, and then it quickly shot over to the right side of the board and stopped on L. Jimmy, is it really you? If you're there, Jimmy, give me a sign. Sal suddenly felt the temperature in the room get warmer. The thermostat on the wall had been turned up 10 degrees, but there was no one else in the room. No one else that Sal could see. Jimmy, Jimmy, have you come back? Suddenly, Sal's transistor radio clicked on, loud. At first, it was all static, and then, Leslie Gore's It's My Party rang out in all its defiant glory. The lights in the room flickered. Sal wondered if he'd finally had a breakthrough. In May 1977, 15 months after Sal Minio's murder, the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department caught a break. Someone had new information about the murder, and they were ready to squawk to whoever was ready to listen. Depending on the source, her name was either Teresa Williams or Teresa Collins. She was 19. And also, depending on the source, she either showed up on the cop's doorstep with a conscience so heavy she just had to unload it, or she had been arrested for solicitation and used the information as leverage to get the charges dropped. Either way, what she had to say was huge. She knew who had killed Sal Minio. She said it was her husband, Lionel Williams. The night of Sal's murder, Lionel had come home covered in blood. He told Teresa he had stabbed someone. He had bought a knife for five bucks earlier that day and then used that knife to commit a string of robberies on LA's west side. One of the robberies went sideways. The guy had just parked his car in the carport, and he screamed when Lionel jumped out from behind some trash cans. Lionel panicked, plunged the knife deep into the man's chest, and then ran off without taking any money. At home that night, the local TV news reported Sal Minio's death. Lionel's jaw dropped. He pointed at the TV screen. The face on the screen was the same face of the man he had stabbed. L.A. cops knew Lionel Williams. He'd been arrested back in 1976, just weeks after Sal's murder for a smash-and-grab job with a hammer and a tire iron, and then again just a month later for some outstanding traffic warrants. They even knew where Lionel Williams was. But there were three problems. First, Lionel Williams was a black man and therefore didn't match the numerous descriptions of white men given by eyewitnesses. The second problem was that he wasn't currently in LA. He wasn't even in California. He was sitting in a jail cell for writing bad checks in Michigan. And the third problem, well, that wasn't a problem technically, but it was just the damnedest thing all the same. Lionel Williams had already been cleared as a suspect in Sal Minio's murder. At this point, over a year ago.
Back in 1976, when Lionel Williams was released from an L.A. County jail after serving time for the smash-and-grab job with the hammer and the tire iron, he asked to speak to a deputy on his way out. He said he had information about the Sal Minio murder. He said that while he was serving his time on the inside, he overheard a conversation between two inmates, blood dudes, he called them. He claimed they were talking about having killed Sal Minio over a drug deal that had gone south. Again, this was early in 1976, shortly after Sal's murder. It was all anyone in Los Angeles talked about, both in and out of the pen. Hollywood was gripped in fear in a way that it had been since the Tate LaBianca murder some seven years earlier. Mere months before Sal's murder, John Kiernan and Barbara Colby, the daughter-in-law of Ethel Merman, both actors were shot to death in the parking lot of their West Los Angeles acting school. In January of 1976, film publicist Robert Yeager was shot in the head and killed when he opened the front door of his Los Angeles home and surprised three would-be burglars. And just two days before Sal's murder, Vincent Donahue, an assistant executive secretary of Actors' Equity, was stabbed to death in his New York City hotel room. All of the murders seemed completely random, but they were all directed at people associated with the entertainment industry. L.A. was on edge. Actors locked their doors. They slept with baseball bats. Every time the phone rang, they went into shock all over again. Meanwhile, the L.A. County Sheriff's Department was skeptical about Lionel Williams' story. Blood dudes and a bad drug deal didn't line up with the quote-unquote alternative lifestyle narrative they were peddling. But still, it seemed odd. Why would Williams randomly snitch on some quote-unquote blood dudes? It would almost be more believable that the reason Williams was offering up this information was because he had been involved in Sal Minio's murder, and thus his story was a calculated diversion should he ever become a suspect. So, L.A. County Sheriff's detectives came knocking on Williams' door. They grilled him on his whereabouts the night of February 12th. His mother was his alibi. He was with her that evening. It seemed airtight. The cops officially crossed Lionel Williams off their list. And now, over a year later, the detectives who had backburnered the investigation into the death of Sal Minio and followed lead after bogus lead, hoping to break open some drug-fueled gay orgy murder scandal, couldn't believe the name they were hearing once again. Lionel Williams. Williams was doing 10 months in Michigan for writing bad checks. And while he was doing time, he couldn't help but talk about himself. The things he had done to earn him a stay in the joint, the things he had done that had gone undiscovered and therefore unpunished. Williams wasn't unlike other guys serving time on the inside. They all talked on the inside. They couldn't fucking help themselves. Jailhouse talk is what made Williams' story about the blood dude so believable in the first place. L.A. County detectives discovered that Williams had bragged in several instances while incarcerated in Michigan about murdering Sal Minio. Once to a fellow inmate and again to a deputy sheriff. They got a court order to bug his cell. And Williams talked some more. And they got it on tape. They did some old-fashioned police work back in L.A. and discovered that Williams was tied to numerous robberies from before and after Sal's murder. The cops were confident that they had their man. Even if he didn't fit the physical description, and even if it had simply been a robbery gone awry, 
the very opposite motive than they had pursued for a year and a half. Lionel Williams waived his right to resist extradition to California. He was up for murder one. LA law enforcement patted itself on the back. The sheriff's bulldogs had done it again, the sheriff glibly told reporters in January of 1978, when Williams was hauled halfway across the country to face charges. However, it was one of the lead detectives on the case who summed it up even better. In retrospect, he said, I think, why didn't I pursue the robbery angle more? We might have solved it a lot sooner. But what about the witnesses? The ones at the Park Wellington Towers on the night of February 12, 1976. Like Roy Evans and nine-year-old Monica Merrim, who said they saw a white male with long hair running away. Turns out that the man the witnesses ID'd that night was someone else entirely another man who was chasing after Lionel Williams. And that was the story anyway. Because by the time the trial began, Lionel Williams had changed his tune. He said he wasn't there the night Sal had a knife plunged into his chest. He pled innocent throughout the entire trial, all the way to the day he was found guilty of second degree murder and 10 robberies and put away for a minimum of 51 years. Sal Minio died mired in debt. His estate was valued at a little over $14,000. Creditors' claims totaled closer to 50 grand. The murder was the most attention Sal Minio had received in years, but it was the wrong kind of attention, the kind that had followed him around most of his life, lurking in subway cars and parking garages. More ink was spilled and more papers coast to coast than had ever been spilled when Sal starred alongside James Dean and Paul Newman. For a long time, it overshadowed all he had accomplished as an actor. The attention he longed for remained unsummoned by a Ouija board, or it was simply unattainable. Stuck behind the locked doors of Hollywood gatekeepers who were only interested in telling a straight story. Decades later, when the gay community began to finally break those doors down and gain some real representation in Hollywood and beyond, that was able to happen because of the small but mighty paths people like Sal Minio had blazed years before. And the path wasn't straight, and neither were the stories. But the stories of Sal Minio, the Stonewall Rebellion, these were the stories that ought to be in pictures. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands. Badlands was created by me, Jake Brennan, and produced by Double Elvis. Credits for this episode can be found on the show notes page at badlandspod.com. Subscribe, follow, like, rate, and review the Badlands podcast wherever you get your podcast because Badlands is available everywhere. If you love this show, tell someone, tell everyone, shout us out on social, spread the word, and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Double Elvis. Double Elvis.